This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for Boxing Day 2013. This, once again, is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, and I, as usual, am Drew Messenger Michaels. By the time you hear this, I will, as a matter of fact, be in Colombia. I am spending the rest of the year with some family down there. Uh, Lucio's with family as well, though he's not traveling quite as far to be with them. Uh, so this is the last thing we're going to put out this year uh, before we you know, move on to some fun new projects in 2014. Before I got packed and everything, and you can you can probably hear that my voice is pretty shredded from uh, finishing up all sorts of projects and just getting stuff done before before leaving. But before I got packed and before I completely decimated uh, my ability to speak in a sonorous fashion, I sat down with Alex Preston, uh, the lead designer on Hyperlight Drifter, and we had a really good conversation about his love of the new 3DS Zelda game, uh, why he thinks I'm a fool for not buying a 3DS. Uh, we talked about how it's okay to still be mad at Roger Reber for taking pot shots of video games. We talked about uh, minimalism and limits and, and how those things can foster greater creativity. We talked about scope in general and words and, and, and Ernest Hemingway and all, all sorts of stuff. It was a pretty good conversation, if I do say so myself. Had a really good time. I think Alex did as well. Uh, quick note, though, that the conversation is on the long side. It's probably about an hour and 35 minutes total, just under that. And uh, that brings up the point that while Lucio and I have been pretty disciplined with the length of our discussion episodes, they've been about a half hour each, maybe a little bit more, uh, the interview episodes are kind of going to be what they're going to be. Um, I don't really see the value in chopping up a conversation with a, with a natural flow and a natural escalation in some cases uh, into little nuggets just for the sake of maintaining an episode length. This is the internet. Some episodes can be long, so this is going to be the whole conversation. Uh, we talk about, you know, all the stuff I just mentioned and also uh, a little bit about the dream team that Alex has assembled to make Hyperlight Drifter uh, a reality. You know, after after his big success on Kickstarter, I think he asked for about $27,000 and got well over a half a million. Uh, he assembled this really amazing uh, team. The guy who is responsible for Fez sounding so good is involved. The guy who is responsible for Samurai Gun feeling so good is involved. It's uh, it's going to be pretty neat, I would say. Uh, it's looking good to me. So anyway, here's Alex, Alex Preston, uh, lead designer of Hyperlight Drifter. Enjoy. Hey, Drew. Hey, how's it going, Alex? It's going all right. How's it going with you? Very, very good. Very, very good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So, how have things been? It seems like things are really kicking into gear with the game. I saw the uh, thing on Rock Paper Shotgun this morning with uh, with Nathan Grayson playing a, a super early build. Yeah, we um, we're just hunkering down and um, making a lot of strides towards you know better games development. So, 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, like, you can already see certain things in place. Uh, the aesthetic is very, very you, like, having looked at your, your drawings on your site and stuff like it, you know, even though I know you've said it's a, the first time you've done pixel art, it definitely has a visual flavor that's recognizably yours and, uh, and uh, follows with uh, what seem to be your preoccupations. The other thing, though, is uh, I know I know you said a while back that you were uh, the you know the, there's sort of a sense that the drifter is a little bit fragile, and I know you've talked a little bit about how you wanted the game to have an element of of illness or fragility tying into the health struggles you've had throughout your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so is that is that woven into the game, or is it more of just like a plot or a framing device thing? Have you come up with a mechanic uh, for for the illness stuff, or, or is it a little bit more abstract or layered on top at this point? Yeah, it's um, it's going to be a core mechanic. The the whole idea of the drifter being relatively fragile, and then we're we're going to have a pretty um, we have plans for a pretty in, integral uh, illness mechanic that I'm not really talking about too much. But it's it's going to be um, a core gameplay component, basically. Is it, are you not talking about it just because you're playing it close to the vest, or because it's still under, you know, still in development and, and may take a very different shape, or, or all of the above? Um, we have a pretty solid idea of how we um, are going to implement it, but of course that may change throughout. Sure. Um, but also, mostly, it's just because I like to keep things as a surprise for people. That makes good sense. I, you know, I, it's argue, arguably there's not enough of that these days, especially with projects that get kickstarted. Uh, I, I've noticed there can be a real propens- a propensity to overshare uh, or, or, you know, document every step of development such that, you know, when, when the game finally comes out, everybody has their own idea of how each tiny little element could have been more what they had in mind, you know, so maybe keeping certain things under wraps makes sense. Even having this little demo come out on RPS was, was uh, you know, there's hesitation for me. It's just like, I, I want people, I want to have a transparent development process, but we're not Vlambeer. We're not doing like, hey, look at us code every little bit of it because we have a lot of secrets in the game. You know, there's there's a pretty heavy story behind it. There's a lot of different core elements about the history and about of this world and about the characters in it and everything else. So I'm trying to be as transparent as I can be without ruining the experience for everybody. So, you know, you'll see updates this coming year in 2014. We'll have more regular updates about like, hey, this is what we're doing, but in a limited scope. So that's like, yeah, you can see a chunk of this. You can see some enemy animation. You can see, you know, you can hear like the behind the scenes process of what Rich Veland is doing or, you know, our sound guy or whatever else. We'll have like little videos and stuff like that. But as far as like core mechanics and things that story, especially like I will, I will not talk about story until well after the game is released, essentially. That makes good sense. I mean, it you know, you bring up Vlambeer. It makes complete sense to have Nuclear Throne out there in the open because, number one, it's a little bit less plot-heavy, shall we say, or a lot a lot less plot-heavy. But it's also, it's a roguelike. It has its hooks in me. It's a great game, and I love what Vlambeer does, and I'm friends with those guys. And um, even, you know, Paul Veer is doing um, some animation work on Hyperlight, so he has, he has some guest spots in there. And again, their game, though, is very different than ours, and they, they can do that with their game because it's it's roguelike you know it's they you're shooting a bunch of stuff and there's progression to it but the the story they have a lot of crazy backstory to it but it's not integral to the experience itself to the mechanics or anything else to them like actually showing this game day by day whereas for us like some of the stuff is very very important and 
to show it would be to ruin the experience. And I don't want to do that. Sure. I mean, you, you wouldn't have wanted to see, you know, a day to day. Here's what we're doing today. Here's the new thing this week for, say, Bastion or the Stanley Parable. It just would have been a completely different thing. Uh, I mean, you would have ruined the Stanley yeah. Parable. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. It would have removed, oh. you know, pretty much all value. Surprise is key to that. So I, I do get the impression that Hyperlight Drifter is similar. Um, not not that it's similar to the Stanley Parable in tone or, or intent or anything. It's a lot of... Um, core narrative elements and stuff like that that we're never going to talk about you know people will see it when they play it yeah no I, I i think there's great wisdom in that and it's so so it seems to me that hyperlight drifter just from what i've observed from afar is an example of how to do kickstarter right in a couple of ways that's one of them that you're not you're not attempting to overshare to sort of uh you know to to you know, mollify or, or anything, uh, the backers. But the other thing is you seem to have kept the stretch goals meaningful. Uh, a lot of stretch goals are, are things that are a little crazy. And I actually got scared about your highest one that it didn't quite hit the, the SNES make uh, to like to demake a game you haven't made seemed, seemed nuts, but there's a lot of Kickstarter projects that, you know, they, they end up in the t-shirt business or they end up taking the game down some crazy Avenue they'd never intended to, where it's, it seems like you planned it out well so that everything, you're doing is either adding value to make the game bigger or deeper or or prettier or or more menacing or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research before I launched my Kickstarter, and um, it was it was a long a long year or two of just observing what was successful and what wasn't successful on Kickstarter. You know, ever since Double Fine made a big splash on that service, it was like, oh, okay, now we can see, and reading statistics recently like it's it's kind of incredible to think about like you know i'm in the the 0.004 percent of campaigns that are successful and have made more than 100k you know out of all the campaigns that launch on that thing so it's 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 nice to be in that position and it's nice to have been rewarded for the effort that i put into i think a lot of people or maybe not i just it seems like people don't really regard um thought and research when they put their kickstarters up as much as they should and it's for me i again like i'm that's what i do best i i research a lot of stuff so it took a long it took a lot of effort and it wasn't it wasn't by chance that i designed the kickstarter the way that i did you know i i followed successful models on it so there's there's do's and don'ts and you know i made my mistakes along the way and there's some physical rewards that I'm like, ah, I don't really want, like, you know, the t-shirt stuff we have a vendor for, but it's still kind of a pain in the ass. And then the prints I always wanted to do. And that's great. And I love, I love physical prints. And the art book was the biggest thing that I always, always wanted to do for, for the game. But that was like a way down the line in magical, um, money land where I ended up being. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do this book after all then. The, the only like off the cuff physical reward um, that has kind of come of it is, oh, well, two of them is the, the plushie that um, one of the guys on the team now, his sister has actually been developing. And that's like a really limited run kind of thing just to see if people want to, and it wasn't even part of the rewards, just that a lot of people asked for plushies. And I was like, all right, well, you know, Rita does a lot of knitting and stitching and whatever else, and she's put together together something really cool but then um also the the box and the manual there's a there's a guy out in the midwest that does a lot of printing for this stuff and he like he's sized all the boxes properly and like he can do big orders and whatever else so that was that was one of the few like off the cuff things that i hadn't really thought about at all until um it came up and then you know 
shovel the shovel night guys uh yacht club games they they offered that and i was like hey who's your vendor for that that sounds really cool and something that people want is you know they like physical stuff and i like physical stuff to a degree and i want to do collector things so i tried to offer a few physical things and keep most of the rest of the stuff virtual digital you know it's it's just for a small tiny team like us it's way easier to do that Sure, yeah, and it makes it clear that after all, the game itself is the point. Uh, that's that's you know everything else is kind of orbital to it's that. Not the swag, it's about the fucking game. So yeah, but it's but it seems like you're definitely doing all that stuff right. It's really cool to see, and the, the research thing is interesting because I feel like a lot of Kickstarters that maybe don't employ that kind of I don't want to say methodology, but that kind of intentionality, right, are are almost defiantly and uh, and and to a fault just punk rock. The work is the work, and there's no point in trying to worry about how it'll be received. I mean, for me, when I um, when I was making this game before it was put out in the public eye, I mean, again, like I'm I'm a nobody in the game business. I'm I'm like a nobody in the whatever business. You know, I was just a freelancer. But for me, I'm. I, it's not about being punk rocker, you know, against the man or anything else. Like I'm just making the game that I want to make and that I want to play. You know, that's that's it. That's the bottom line. And, you know, fuck what anybody else really thinks or or says. And that, whether that's a punk rock attitude or not, like, I don't care. Like, I'm making the game I want to make and that I want other people to, to play with. Yes, of course, to a degree. But ultimately, it's about the things that I've been wanting to see in games or the things that I miss in games or the things that certain games almost did right or didn't do right or I could fix or whatever else and putting it into a package is satisfying for me and that's an experience for me that I want to actually play, you know? Definitely, definitely. Well, so without getting into spoiler territory or anything that you're not ready to talk about, uh, let's, let's talk about those elements a bit because you, you've mentioned Diablo, you've mentioned A Link to the Past. Uh, watching the video that dropped this morning, I can definitely see both of those. Uh, just little things especially remind me of that. Uh, I thought of Link to the Past immediately when... Uh, when I saw like enemies getting knocked off ledges, right? Like that was just one of those tiny little things that I always loved in Link to the Past. Yeah. And there's clearly been, you know, just deflecting shots across, you know, th- things like that. Is have those two sort of elements stayed core? Uh, those two influences, I should say. Uh, has has that direction changed? Are there are there other things you want to talk about? Like, what is it about Link to the Past, I suppose, and what is it about Diablo that made those your two touchstones? And and where have you gone from there? I mean, Link to the Past had an amazing art style that, like, really, it's like this minimalist but beautiful art style that perfectly fit what this SNES was capable at the time of. You know, it, it took its limitations and it made it into something that was art um, and gorgeous art. So that was kind of the primary experience for me with Link to the Past because I wasn't directly playing it as a kid. Um, I was always watching my brother play it. Because I was the younger kid, and he had the SNES, and I had I was you know, any single player game defaulted to him because I was shitty at games when I was that young, you know. Um, so watching the whole adventure unfold was always kind of magical to me. And then eventually being able to play through the game, and it, you know, it's such a classic game, such so well designed, so tightly designed. That's one of the other core things that I took away from Link to the Past, at least. Um, and even Link Between Worlds now, is, is it's pushed that formula into the modern era, and they've done such a fantastic job with it because, again, the groundwork that they've laid with Link to the Past and the original Zeldas like, is so solid even to today. You know, that's why so many people have ripped it off, and that's why I, you know, I take things from it too. It's just like 
there's great mechanics about it and it feels good and it plays well and um you know it's it's a much slower paced game and the scale is pretty small due to the limitations of the snes but as far as far as what i take from that it's like the visual simplicity and you know the the perfect controls in a lot of ways at least for its limitations and then diablo stuff you know the big masses of enemies were always a big thing for me and then the kind of sense of scale that you got of the adventure it was a much bigger wider range kind of thing even in diablo one where you're going down 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 just this one big giant dungeon to hell like there's still a lot of scale for even even a game back then and then diablo 2 brought it up uh you know like tenfold where it had just you know massive dungeons and big palaces and whatever else and that's the kind of thing I'm going for here is, you know, that you're going to encounter big clusters and clusters of enemies and you're going to encounter huge landmarks and you're going to encounter a lot of a lot of grandiose stuff on your your bigger adventure. And that's, you know, these videos are geared more towards people playing it um, and not really experiencing the full game. So there's a lot of combat, but it's going to be a much, much bigger mixture of you know, exploration and combat rather than just pure slash, slash, slash. Definitely, definitely. When it's, it seems like the combination of the minimal and the maximal is maybe uh, maybe the one way to think of where Link to the Past meets Diablo. Because Diablo, as you say, is huge in some ways, but is also, you know, reasonably limited in terms of classes and skill trees. And Link to the Past, as you say, is its scale is limited in some ways by what the SNES could do. But it also, you know, certainly at the time that it came out, felt massive. You know, you, you got the three pendants, you, you know, and then, then there was this whole other world. No, no other game was really doing that kind of thing. Like it, it took the original formula and it expanded on it tenfold. You know, like orders of magnitude better. And it was, it was one of those first games that you felt like, oh fuck, this is a really grand adventure. But then you look at it today, and it's actually a fucking tiny game. You know? Yeah, yeah. Knowing knowing where stuff is, you could probably beat it in an afternoon. Like if you yeah, really, yeah. You, re you really can blast through that game very quickly. And even the scale of stuff, like as a kid, it looked so big, and I was like, oh man, this, there's this big ass dungeon, and like Turtle Rock is huge, and like there's a palace and whatever else. And then you take a look at it, and things are are pretty small. You know, like the just just by pixel size, you know, the sprites are pretty small, and even the background elements are pretty small and the, the dungeons themselves are pretty limited and, and, and small as, you know, like Link Between Worlds has expanded that and made it really interesting and it's added a lot of layering and, and there's like 14 floors to some dungeons, which is great. Like it, mm. it kind of modernized and brought that stuff into into the, the current game era, which is why it's my favorite game of the year. But um Again, it built on that that solid original design where back in the day, yeah, it was it was so powerful and so big. And now when you look at it, it's like, oh, this is actually not that big compared to a lot of stuff that has come out recently that it, it really is massive. You look at something like here's a here's a mashup game like you know, the Darksiders series where like they really are just taking the 3D Zelda formula and mixing it with some other interesting elements and i think they're relatively successful in the first one and even the second one and I, I never beat either of them because i felt like the um art direction wasn't really for me and some of the like the combo-y stuff and whatever else is like eh, you're like complicating you're complicating a formula just for the sake of making it complicated and like there's mm -hmm. like crafting and whatever else like, i don't really need this i just want to play a pure adventure 
And then the story itself was kind of like it, it had a unique style in the um, in the art. And that's due to the, the comic book artist that illustrated it, that did the concept design and all that. But like the story felt really flat for me. So that's why I wasn't so interested in, in those games and I couldn't play them through. Like, But suffice to say, like they took a lot of cues from like Shadow of Colossus in the second one and they started to do really grand scale shit. And Shadow of the Colossus was one of those first games, and even Ico had a lot of huge scale to the environments, and that was that's that's the kind of stuff that we're going for here. Is you know, I don't think we're gonna have um, every boss be climbable and all that kind of shit, but you know, we're we're going for big scale. It doesn't it doesn't showcase here in any of these demos? That's stuff for later on, but you know, I you know, there's the memory limitations are no longer there and I want to do, I want to do big stuff in this game. So, yeah, well, so that's an interesting thing, you know, working with, you know, respecting designs that were perhaps made better by limitations, but not having those limitations now, uh, is the pixel art style a way to sort of impose that kind of limitation on yourself? Cause obviously you've got experience working with more sort of traditional analog graphic media paints and, and, uh, and pencil and stuff. Did, is the pixel art about giving yourself sort of a challenge of, of minimal visual information? I mean, the pixel art style originally, it was, I was doing this game, um, you know, like a 1080p or whatever, and I was doing full illustration for it. And then I realized pretty quickly, like, I'm not going to be able to actually animate all this by myself or even draw all this by myself without feeling ridiculous or taking, you know, amazing amounts of time, which is, again, why a lot of people, a lot of smaller developers, one or two or three-man teams go the pixel route style because you, you have a limited palette. And that that in itself, like you were mentioning, can be very empowering. And... um for me, like I wasn't satisfied with just like a typical pixel art style. So I wanted to do something with like, as long as I could find a way to make it look the way that I wanted to originally in some sense, then I was happy with working in this limited palette or this, this limited canvas, I guess, um, because it allows me to rapidly do things. Whereas, you know, a full resolution one is mm, takes way more time to do, which is why, you know, big 3d games with massive worlds, like, art assets are the shit that takes the longest, man. And the pixel art style, it ended up being something really interesting. I was not that interested in doing pixel art when I first started programming this. So, but as, as I made the decision, I was like, fuck, I need to go, I need to go smaller. Otherwise I'll be making this game for 30 years. Um, I I embraced it more and I, I, I've always loved good pixel art. Um, and something like, you know, Paul Robertson, he does amazing shit with that. And all, there's a lot of great pixel artists out there. I've always respected it. But for myself, I was never like, oh, I want to become a great pixel artist. So it wasn't it wasn't a goal at my outset. It was just kind of a a way to actually get this game done. Yeah, it's, I think you've achieved a pretty good balance because it, it certainly is pixel art, right? But it doesn't move like pixel art. It's a lot more fluid. Uh, it's got kind of a lot of frames to it in, in a way that a lot of pixel art doesn't. So oh, it feels... I mean, there's a shitload of hand, hand-drawn hand animation in here, and there will be a shitload more of hand-drawn animation. So for me, yeah, I want to... There's, again, there's a it's a limited canvas, but I want to do as much as I can within it. Definitely. I think, so that's that's interesting, right? The, the limitation used to be technological, and now it's more economical. It's, it's about time, and it's about what a small team can do. It... 
it's interesting that you mention a link between worlds because uh, I haven't I haven't played it, uh, and the reason is just that I don't have a 3DS, and the reason for that is that I feel like I have I'm kept so busy by just indie games on my PC that you know it, it's hard to justify the purchase or whatever. Justify the purchase because the 3DS has some of the it's probably the best console out there right now. I don't doubt it. It hasn't even crossed my mind to buy a PS4 or an Xbox One, but the 3DS has been dancing in front of me for a while. Like 360 and PS3 and Wii U and whatever else. Like Nintendo has and third parties have put some really incredible games on the 3DS in the past couple of years since it's been out. And that wasn't, you know, the first half of a year or even almost the first year of, of its life. That wasn't the case, but it's turned around. It, good Lord, it has... It has some of my favorite games of this generation, this last generation on it. It's it's a it's a fucking machine to behold. So yeah, I've, I definitely. It's interesting actually to see more and more people uh, sort of eschewing Angry Birds and playing uh, Animal Crossing on the train. Like just you know noticing on commutes, uh, yeah. guys in suits, teenagers, college students, whatever. Everybody's. I'm seeing more and more 3ds's. I'm not seeing a whole lot of PS Vitas, uh, but I'm seeing a ton of 3ds's everywhere. I mean, there there aren't a lot of PS Vitas out there, but the good thing about the Vita is that it's just getting more and more games, regardless. And I think I think it'll be one of those slow pickup things. It's not going to have a killer app right anytime soon because it 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 has amazing games on it, games that you should play, but killer app in the sense that people know about it and will buy it, and it's a it's a system selling game like Tearaway should kind of be that game but it's not advertised as it and people don't understand it and whatever else I don't know but the Vita I think you know it's just it's just getting more and more awesome games so good for it absolutely I mean it's it's an interesting time because there really isn't a system that doesn't have great games you know not to say killer apps not to say system sellers but there's any machine you've got can play something incredible but the, because that because there's just so much good stuff out there, you could also live in one of those worlds quite comfortably. Like like the thing is, like I said, I don't have a 3DS. But if I only had a 3DS, if I didn't have a gaming PC tomorrow, I'm sure I could buy a 3DS and keep myself quite busy. What are you playing on? What are you playing on PC? Uh, so <laughs> I spoke to Davey Reardon, uh, who made the Stanley Parable a while ago, and he kind of rekindled my love of Spelunky. He's pretty obsessed uh, uh. with that. So I've been playing way more Spelunky, probably too much Spelunky. Um, I recently got Samurai Gun. Uh, which is awesome. I've had some really good, uh, really good local uh, local times with that. Um, I finally got around to playing the Saints Row games. Uh, I hadn't really played three or four, so that's that's been pretty incredible. And that's you know well outside of the indie space, obviously, but uh, pretty pretty amazing. Those games are a blast. Again, Bo being on the team and having really simmer gun, you can see you can cut, well you can feel how that game plays and. For him and I, feel is so crucial to a game, and just those little nuances of like, how does this game actually play? It's just like the controls are so critical, and like the feedback that you get from damage and whatever else, like all that stuff is super critical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, feel. So the other thing I've been playing a lot of lately is dungeon, uh, uh, desktop dungeons. I almost said Dungeon Defenders, which is a rather different game, but it's even though it's entirely turn-based, there's no moving a character around in space. It definitely gets gets that feel right. Like, it, it just, things move when you expect them to move, and clicking things does what it should, and hovering over things does what it should. I think I think people underestimate feel in terms of, it's, it's kind of like how if you're watching a movie, the camera work really influences how you experience it, but most people aren't consciously thinking about that. I think that's kind of what feel is for a game. Most people are just like, this is a good game, this is a bad game. They're not thinking about hitboxes or, or things like that. Mm. 
Well, which is why some, a company like Nintendo, they know what the hell they're doing. And which is why their games always, at the very least, even if they're rehashes or even if they're using a lot of the same franchises, like, they know how to make a fucking game feel good. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, Super Mario 3D World. Made great game. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons for me is, like, all those little flourishes and touches with the animation, like the dust and the run dust and the little boosts and all that stuff, like, it's just that little, those little bits of visual and audio feedback that make a game feel good. And then it just, it plays, the jumping is spot on and the running is spot on, like, the controls themselves are perfected, so that kind of stuff is really, really meaningful to me, and you couldn't, that kind of fidelity, I think people take for granted at certain points, and especially for indie games, like, you look at really old indie games, and, like, that shit plays like garbage sometimes, and I think Cave Story was one of the first games to kind of get the controls right, and, like, get that precision in an indie game that one guy was making, and it's like, oh, cool, People can make games as good as fucking, you know, any of the old school stuff that really happens. Yeah, yeah, just enough time and enough attention to detail. I mean, I, I think for most people, cave, you know, Cave Story, for those who were tuned in, was definitely the moment where people realized it was possible. I think maybe the wider world realized it long about, I don't know, Super Meat Boy? It was all about the controls. But Cave Story, back in the day, when it first released, you know, I think for people like me, it, it clicked. And it's like, oh, it's taking this formula. And look, it understands controls. It understands understands feel and it understands the importance of you know how every little thing plays in a mechanical sense you know that's so fucking crucial yeah absolutely anyway sorry go on go on with the questions no not at all no that i mean this is exactly the avenue that i because because what i'm interested in is as especially smaller teams keep you know, working in this space. And just because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that even the very idea of an indie game was kind of blowing people's minds. So it's interesting to me what people's different preoccupations are, whether it's whether it's the writing, whether it's the feel, whether it's, you know, level design. I think you can learn a lot by what somebody's obsessed with because you talk to different, you talk to different developers, you know, as, as artists in any medium, they're going to have different preoccupations. And, and to know that your deal is feel is very interesting to me because, like, you, you talk to, again, like Supergiant who made Bastion... And their overarching concern is, you know, they're interested in how it feels, obviously, but to the end of, is this thematically resonant? You know what I mean? And and not to imply that you're not interested in thematic resonance, but to think of, to know what people are obsessing with at a given time is extremely interesting to me. So yeah. for our team, like, yeah, right now at this very point, that's what we're, that's what I'm obsessing about mostly is like how stuff feels and like what, if the core mechanics are making sense contextually as well like for the enemies for the environments for the kinds of things we're trying to do so we're always refining and and doing a lot of stuff to like even this demo that um rock paper shotgun played that nathan played we've removed some of those systems and placed them in different areas and done different things as far as the how the character plays like we've shuffled some stuff around like we're we're still prototyping certain stuff because you know, there. If once for me, once I get that stuff feeling exactly how I want, then I can move on. And at the same time, my attention is split because, you know, I have you know, one of my my teammates, Casey. Like his big thing is story, and that's incredibly important to me, of course, in the world and the design and the aesthetic and all that stuff. But he's like, he's all one hundred percent about story and pushing that right now. So he's 
He's making sure that we don't drown ourselves in just like pure mechanics. Yeah, because obviously the goal is for all of those things to be in harmony or or in useful discord, right? But for them to be working together in some way. I can easily just go on, I can just laser focus on one thing and ignore everything else. But, you know, I can't do that. I have to, I have to be able to multitask on stuff. And all of these elements are very important to me. But like the order of importance, the order of obsession for me is usually something like visuals, feel and then story slash characterization whereas like you know Bo his I think his biggest thing is feel more than anything else and and game mechanics and looks are you know probably a distant third or fourth or I don't even know what where they rank on his list he's, he's big on flourishes and looks as long as they add to the feel of a character again like run dust or like dash dust or some sort of visual feedback to show you that you've done this thing, you know? I think sound, too, can get the short... I mean, you know, we're talking going back to A Link to the Past for a moment. I think one of the elements that people don't think about quite as much with that game is the sound design. You know, there's, there's this kind of weird, velvety, soft thing to all of the sounds in the game that just produces this kind of warm, adventurous feel to the whole thing. And it, it seems even just again in the early version, that, that you're putting a similar level of love and intentionality into the way it sounds when you slash or, or whatever. I mean, the sound is incredibly, incredibly important. And I'm, like, I wear many hats, basically. I have to consider a lot of stuff. And um, certain games, for me, they can play very well, but if they don't sound good, I don't give a fuck. It's just, it pisses me off. Like, a good example, I play all the Call of Duties because they're fun. I don't, I don't really care if they want to annualize it or whatever else, as long as they stay fun and have good level design. Some of them have good level design, some of them don't. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 was a kind of a bad game. Um, but I understand why, because the entire studio left, basically. Yeah, that'll do it. That, that'll yeah. pretty much do it. Level designs in, in the multiplayer match for that game fucking blue. Um, anyway, but if you look at something like Big example, Treyarch. Their sound design, I fucking hated it for the first few Call of Duties that they did. I thought it was terrible. I thought the pistol sounded like garbage. I thought all the guns were like pea shooter sounds. It's like, this sounds like shit, and it makes and it makes the game less fun because I'm not getting that that auditory impact. I'm not I'm not getting that feel, you know, like the gun does not feel good to shoot because it sounds like shit. Um and so a direct comparison is like Modern Warfare One or Two, where the guns sound fucking amazing, and they're bassy and they're and they have like this mechanical um, chew to it, and it's like, yeah, this is this sounds meaty and good, and like it's gonna fucking tear through you. And then you want to take it to another level, you know, Battlefield Three and Four have amazing sound design. It's like you really feel like you're in a fucking war zone. All the guns sound good, all the environments sound good, like bullets whizzing by sound amazing, and it makes the experience that much more important. Like putting it on mute, sure, you can compare stuff, but sound design is so fucking important, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. And again, having those auditory cues for when you've successfully done something is very important as well. Like you notice in our demo, um, Nathan isn't so good at it, but there is like this component um, of comboing where if you don't get hit, your critical hit chance goes up, and that's what the um, sword combo going, the pitch going up is um, relating to. It's giving you that feedback, like, yeah, you've successfully done another hit, 
on an enemy without getting hit. Like you're continuing the string. So stuff like that, those little nuances are very important. And we're working with our sound designer, Akash. He's he's good at this stuff and making sure like, you know, like we revise certain sounds, you know, a couple dozen times for certain things. And it's like, yeah, until it feels right, we're not going to put it in there. Yeah, I mean, again, not to keep bringing it back to Nintendo, but they take they exert such incredible ownership over the way little things sound. You know, just you know, the sound of Mario's jump they made in house, and they you know they they remix or tweak as the game warrants, and and that's that. So they were better at sound design in in the yesteryears. These days, I'm not so hot on their sound design. Um, yeah, there's definitely less invention to it. I mean, like the Gal- the Mario Galaxy games had some pretty good stuff, especially with the you know the the uh, the things that move at the speed at which you move or are otherwise contextually altered. But it's not as tight, certainly, as like the original Super Mario Brothers or anything like that. I mean, like all their six- all their Super Nintendo games had amazing sound design, and then I don't know what's happened throughout the years, but like the Wii and the Wii U sound design not so hot on for them, but. Uh... You know, again, like just looking at shooters as a base because everybody fucking plays shooters and they're the most popular things. Like, or you know, looking at Diablo three, where they did they did some they did everything right when it came to the combat and the feel of it, and the look of it, and the impact of it, and the sound of it. Like everything about clicking on an enemy and hitting it felt amazing. You know, regardless of all of its other flaws and how much I may dislike it now as a game, um, Diablo 3's combat was so fucking satisfying. And they, they like, everybody from the sound designers to the animators to the guy, the programmers working on the physics and everything else, like, they all got it. And it, it all came together and it felt really, really satisfying. And it fucking should because that's all you do in that game. Right. To hit enemies, it felt extremely satisfying, and that was a combination of all these things. And so it's just, you know same thing with any game. Like you have to you have to consider all these different components in order to make a whole. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the things that were frustrating about Diablo three would not have been quite so frustrating if if the core loop or whatever was not that good. You know, if it if it didn't feel good to hit stuff, then you wouldn't have wanted them to drop better loot. You wouldn't have cared about the auction house or whatever. You know, peripheral silliness dragged that game down. I don't even think it's peripheral silliness. I think it's a lot of core silliness, like the worst voice acting and the worst sure. the worst story I've seen in a fucking game. In I game. was I was being generous, no question. Well, I mean, just you know, Deckard Kane comes on, and you sort of expect you know the audience to applaud like they would if Kramer came on screen in Seinfeld. Just like that, it really, really wanted you to be invested in this story you had no part in. It was very, very weird. And then, I mean, even even leaving aside plot and voice acting. It had core problems like that. You cannot leave those aside because those were two of the worst things in that fucking game. The battle between Diablo at the very end, the worst fucking boss battles of all time. I had to mute that fucking thing. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, you're exactly right. And I'm not saying we should leave it aside. I'm just saying even in a magical world where we could, there were still pretty big problems. Oh. Like, yeah, yeah. Like the, the fact that the whole first time you go through the game is explicitly and almost intentionally bullshit and not a challenge. And then it really starts the second time around. That's that's pretty bad design. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not. It's got a lot of problems. And it was really. Because yeah. a lot of people are looking forward to it, including myself. So, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, you know, there's a silver lining to that too, because I think, I think, uh, Path of Exile and Torchlight Two had more space than they probably would have to to find an audience because people were looking for something that wasn't Diablo Three. I wouldn't have picked up Torchlight Two if I, um, if Diablo Three wasn't so fucking disappointing. Like I, I went to PAX and Torchlight Two was there, and I played it, 
I was like, oh, this is great, but Diablo 3 is coming out, and I'm never going to play this game because I'm going to be so wrapped up in Diablo for so long. And it was like a month of Diablo, and I was completely done with that game. Just like, yeah, there's this game. Well, it was a lot of fun to do certain things, but then like the cracks just keep coming, and you're like, oh, man, this is, this is really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So jumping back a few topics, you asked me what I've been playing. What have you been playing? Have you had time to play anything, or have you been sort of deep, deep in uh, development and, and not having uh, time for much else? Um, I mean, we've been pretty deep in development, but, you know, it's holiday season, so um, I um, we're, we're all taking kind of mini breaks. But um, uh, as time is permitted, I've been playing some Risk of Rain, which is interesting, um, if not a little annoying, but uh, still good. And then um, I was playing, what else was I playing? Um, I just picked up Assassin's Creed 4. Haven't, haven't tried 4 yet. I've, I've, heard, I've heard mixed, I've really, really enjoyed watching friends play it and just seeing all the crazy glitches. And uh, the sailing certainly seems satisfying, but I, I don't have too much of an opinion uh, otherwise so far. Skipped, I skipped all of them. I, I, I've only played Brotherhood, which was great. And... Um, Brotherhood was really good. The multiplayer was super interesting too. That kind of you know Turing test kind of kind of aspect to it. I did a lot of really good things, and I was super impressed with that game. Um, and then I skipped all the rest. It's like, yeah, these reviews are not great, and the things they're saying are like all the problems I had before. And I was like, well, might as well pick up a new Assassin's Creed, especially since it has all the sailing. But I just got into it, so I can't say much about that. But other than that, um, Link Between Worlds. And I think there's like one other game that I'm playing on PC, and I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, I mean, I've playing, been playing Nuclear Throne, so. Yeah, no, no I, every time they do a weekly update, I, I poke around and then and then watch the little thing to see if uh, see if I missed something that's new. Yeah. Uh, and then the other, so Starbound is the other game I've been playing a bit. Uh, just you know, the, the very early state that it's in, it's really interesting. It's the kind of it's that's the kind of game that it's fun to watch grow. Reminds me a little bit of you know the Minecraft alpha back in the day or, or things like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I will ever play that game. I um, I respect what it does, and I have no problems with it. It's just like I tried Terraria, I've tried Minecraft, and I not saying that they're, they're the exact same thing or anything, but there's similarities to it, and that whole building and, and constructing and crafting. Like I was never a big, I was never big on crafting stuff in games and building up this fortress or whatever. Like RTS is sure it made sense. Like I fucking love building up my base. But that was in direct correlation with huge battles and like, uh, you know, withstanding this assault. And this is just like you're digging further and crafting shit to dig further and exploring new worlds. And I don't know. It's just it's not my type of game. So I did, you, uh, have, did you try King Arthur's Gold just because that sort of takes the whole crafting, you know, Terraria looking kind of thing and, and puts it in the context of a battle? No, I don't know. It, it's pretty interesting. It's it's basically I don't know if you played uh, Ace of Spades. It was kind of Minecraft plus Team Fortress Two, and this is kind of Terraria plus Team Fortress Two. You're on two sides. You're trying to capture territory or, or kill your enemies or whatever. But you can build giant bases and giant siege engines to get through those bases, uh, and you know it all, it all happens really quick. A match is like ten minutes tops. It's interesting. It's an interesting kind of spin on that whole genre. Being that quick, that sounds good to me. Maybe I'll pick it up. Yeah, it's it's entertaining. It's it's most fun if you've got a bunch of friends to play with because it's one you know it can be like thirty two people in a in a match, 
Uh, but even with random, you know, it's, it's sort of fun to see the inventive things random strangers think to do online. Like, there's a class with bombs, and you may not realize at first that you can use the bombs to make yourself go flying and jump over a huge wall. And, you know, guys with shields, the shields are hang gliders. And there's just, there's a lot of kind of interesting depth to the relatively small handful of systems at play. So it's it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um, I mean, you mentioned TF2, and that's, that's another one of those games where a lot of the design was so tight and fit together so well. Um, and obviously, they'd been developing that game for fucking ever and ever, but, you know, it changed pretty pretty drastically from what it originally was. And that's one of my favorite games of all time. Like The, the sensibilities behind it, the sound design. Um, the reason why I play Soldier and Demo Man so much is because it's so satisfying just to explode people. Um, like, yeah, it's fun to shoot people in the head and whatever else, but, like, Gibbs are something that I really missed in first-person shooters. And they don't, like, not a lot of games do Gibbs anymore. Like, I, I was a Quake and Unreal Tournament fan back in the day. And blowing blowing things into pieces is a lot of fun. So we have, like, if you notice in Hyperlight, there's a lot of, like, satisfying enemy to animation stuff going on where you're slicing guys open, like, in a very limited sense right now. But ultimately, like, yeah, you'll be blowing things apart and whatever else. Like, that kind of satisfying feedback is so important to that experience for me. Yeah, definitely. It reminded me, again, I know I'm looking at a very early video and I shouldn't judge, you know, aesthetic or systems or anything uh, completely. But one thing it reminded me of was The Binding of Isaac in that there was really strong feedback whenever you get rid of an enemy or when or when an enemy hits you for that matter. It's always clear what's going on. And also in the sense that it's a lot sort of gorier than you, than you could you could necessarily get away with in a more high fidelity, less abstract setting. Like it's, you know, it's, it's pretty bloody, but it doesn't come across as over the top or grimdark or dark siders uh, because you know, it, it, it does leave a little of that to your animation, which makes it darker in a way, but also, also a little bit more, I don't want to say palatable, but more, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting aesthetic thing where we're making it a bit more stylized and a bit more abstracted and perhaps a bit more pixely lets you go to places you might not have been able to go otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of war to a degree, and you obviously see that here. Um, but yeah, we're not trying to go over the top Mortal Mortal Kombat style or anything like that. Well, that's but, sort of what I mean. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't throw it in your face. It's not it's not or even like God of War style, where it's just like, good lord, this is like I can I almost can't play this game because you've gone so over the top with the gore in this and like the the fucking murder porn in it. It's like no thank. <laughs> I had I had I had to stop playing God of War three. I think mean, I played through the first one, and a good chunk of the second one. And the third one, I was already tired of the formula, and also again, like the gore is just like this is it's gore porn. I can't. I am not going to do this. This is not my thing. It's yeah. I'm not into it, and which is why again, like I appreciate what Nintendo does, and when they released that feed the other day, I was like, this is pure joy, and there's no gore at all in it. It's just like. All of these games look like fantastic fun, and I'm going to have so much fun on my Wii U this year, and it's going to be great. And there's zero gore in it. And again, like there's a place, time and place for gory shit. And for us, like because, like you said, we're so stylized, uh, we we it's more of a feedback thing and more of like a I want that oomph to it. So yeah, things are going to bleed out and blood's going to go out in an arc. And you think of something like Metal Slug where. Again, the blood and the gore in that plays a crucial role in feedback rather than just like, oh, it's super bloody. and 
Well, it goes back to the limitation thing. I think as we get more photorealistic, as God of War sort of sort of did, it becomes less charming and less feedback based, and as you say, more just like look at this guy's neck explode, you know, and that's that's less yeah. interesting. They put the sinews in there, and they put all this thing. He's ripping this eyeball out, and it's like you can see the trail on there. It's like I don't want that. I don't want to play that. I'm yeah. not into that. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people are, and God of War did well, and whatever else. But like, they just got way far into that. By the third one, I was like, no, thanks, I'm done. I actually, I had a hard time with the new Tomb Raider for a similar reason. It's it's oh, not, yeah. you know, the success states are not quite as bloody, but they, you know, anytime you fail a QTE in that game, they have lovingly animated Laura Croft dying in a really horrible way. And, you know, AAA game, that wasn't cheap to animate. They made that a priority. Like, it's, it's Rule strange. one is when she's, like, going down the river, and then she gets stuck in a spike in her fucking oh. head. And then she's, like, grabbing at her head, and the thing is, like... Oh, this is horrifying. This this is really truly horrifying. Like, why are you doing this? What does this add to the experience at all, other than to say like, this is gross. Don't die. But yeah, we already know don't die because it's annoying to die. We don't want to die. It's like, why add this extra layer of like fidgety gore porn? It's really gross. Right, because because it, it wouldn't be in there if they didn't think someone was enjoying it. So it's not it's not actually about making you avoid death. If anything, it's about giving you this laboratory where you you know if if you're interested in that, you're gonna you're gonna fail every one of them and just to see like it, it it's a really strange form of incentive, I suppose. I don't. Yeah, I was that was not for me. Those those deaths just like this way. It felt out of place and weird and gross. And already, like, Lara Croft is such a sexualized character. And then you have her making these sounds, and everybody's like, oh, well, you just isolate those, and they sound like sex sounds, whatever else. And I like the way that they talked about that game originally. It seemed like mechanically that game is really good, and it's beautiful and whatever else. But, like, there's some things about it that really bother me. And that's that was one of those components, just like all those deaths that they went to great lengths and obviously spent a lot of money um, because I know 3D animators and it takes a while to do that shit. And even if they rigged it up on a mocap machine, like that still takes time and money. And you went to the app to do all these different, really like drastic, like over the top deaths. And it's like, Jesus Christ, stop. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it's kind of a it's a culture wide, worldwide problem. It's it's not you know it's worse in games perhaps, but when we want to reinvent a female character and make her powerful or she finds her strength or whatever, it you know it, it either becomes that stuff or we throw rape in there. You know, it's it's a big problem in comic books. Anytime anybody gets a new backstory, it involves rape and or, or it involves some kind of harrowing, terrible experience in a way that we wouldn't do with a male a male character getting a new origin story. Oh yeah, you never see like a guy getting raped and then like that's his, that's why he's the way he is today yeah unless it's kind of a weird off one-off joke like it was in far cry 3 but even then that wasn't the protagonist right like it wasn't a, a formative event or wasn't meant to be yeah far cry 3 was a really good game also and it didn't go over the top in anything like in the story could have been really great but it was pretty eh but at least it wasn't offensive you know it's interesting to hear the writers or the, or the lead writer talk about Far Cry Three because he, I think, he sort of thought that he was writing a great satire, and it, you know, it wasn't, cr- it wasn't crazier enough than the things it was satirizing by a wide enough margin to come across that way to virtually anybody who played it. it didn't it fell flat? And with the introduction, like of, um, of the the main antagonist and and how he was setting up the whole game and how the character in the beginning, I think giant bomb talked about this for a while and like why the story is so disappointing for them. And I, I totally agreed with 
their like line of thought with, man, they had such a great setup. Um, and it's like, oh, maybe this guy, he's actually, you know, he's hallucinating this or he like it's psychosis or whatever else. Because he talked about like the meaning of uh, madness, insanity. Like, doing insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And like, oh, OK, so there's cues here, like you're pointing towards something interesting. And like maybe this guy's been trapped on the island and he's just reliving things. And, you know, he, that's why he's so good and natural at killing. And it's just like, no, he's just a bro who has a bro who's good at killing and he's just going to become good at killing too. And it's like this brush off all this stuff. And yeah, that satirization just fell, just fell totally flat. And like talking about satirization in modern games, GTA five, good Lord, I could not play the rest of that game either. Yeah. Well, well taking, taking the position that everyone's stupid and everything sucks is not necessarily satire. Is the no, thing. and and again, like they think they're being clever in parts, and all they're doing is being loud, and it's just like the political ad campaigns that they're quote unquote satirizing. It's like all you're doing is taking what already exists and making it louder, and doing really dumb, blatant lines in a very unclever way. And even some of the dialogue, like people praise it for its dialogue and you know whatever else. I'm like, this is just loud and obnoxious, and I hate all the characters, and everything is so obvious, and there's no nuance or subtlety to any part of this game. I cannot stand it. Definitely looks expensive though. You got to give it that. Oh, it's great. And being and living in LA, it's like they've done an amazing job with the city and condensing it and like really picking out the landmarks and making them look a specific way so it's recognizable but it's different. It feels like LA, honestly. Like they've done that's the best city that they've done in a game. But the story shit and the dialogue stuff, it's like quit punching me in the dick with this. You're not funny and you're not clever and you're not satirizing every anything at all. Like, and you're just fucking preaching to the choir anyway. You're just being a bunch of assholes. Yeah, yeah, preaching to the choir and and not not saying anything while preaching. That's the crazy thing to me. Like, if you, if it's going to be really arch and obvious, that's okay. That's a pitfall of comedy. Fine, but it's not saying anything about anything. It's just it's just there. It's not. All it's doing is being loud about things that thinks that it think that you know it has problems with or wants to satirize. And again. Yeah, there's no message behind any of it. It's like, go ahead, be a bank robber, murder a bunch of people, do heists, do all this. Like, there's no consequence to any of it. And like, oh, yeah, we did some story and this guy he has his problems and he's a meth dealer and this guy is an old man with his family and he's unsatisfied. And there's some interest there. But it's like I didn't feel for any of them because they're all just loud fucking asshole piece of shit dudes. And it's like. Fuck this game and fuck all all the it's it's just loud and stupid and I don't want a loud and stupid game I can't stand it. I've talked to a lot of people who said that the character they actually felt for the most was is Trevor the psychotic one. Oh. They because they because that's actually a, a vaguely interesting idea to like uh, you know here here's here's who you're really playing when you play these games. You're not playing Nico Bellic the sensitive broken version of the American dream. This isn't a Scorsese movie. You're playing a weird broken psychopath. Yeah, exactly. And he had some interesting nuance to him, you know, like he's bisexual or whatever. And, you know, he's he's kind of the only one that has it together in his, enough in his in his shitty ass group of meth heads to just like be somewhat of a leader of a figurehead. You know, like he's just barely scraping by and keeping together. He was. Yeah. And he was by far the most interesting and in-depth character in, in those sensibilities and had some nuance to him unlike the others where they're just like 
I'm a caricature of a bunch of movies. Right, right. Because with Trevor, there's a sense that they're being honest about what it is they've created, whereas with everything else, as you say, it was movie tropes or else it was just, you know, a sort of late period South Park-like regurgitation of some, you know, caricatured political point of view. Uh, As though just putting that forth is, yeah. Except South Park is loud and does it in a really funny way. And they like some clever satire in there. Totally. No, I completely agree. There's, there's even if the point being made is something kind of, uh, kind of off kilter, or even if, even if it's way too obvious or whatever, they're always, they're always making an argument. And GTA doesn't even kind of GTA Five, I should say, doesn't even go that far. No, it doesn't. Like at least South Park, you know, with a, even lacking some nuance and whatever. Like at least it's they stand there and they literally have stand. I learned or, something today. Yeah. Or somebody or one of the other characters display like, hey. Let me throw out some dialogue. Let me monologue on this and tell you why it's fucked up. And that's interesting, at least, because they've taken a position on something. Yeah, well, it was, like, and you could do that in a game. I mean, Spec Ops The Line basically uh, basically did that, right? Yeah, yeah. Spec Ops is a super interesting game in that regard. And, you know, anyway, it's, it's, there's a lot of bad writing in games, and I intend to not have bad writing in my game. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, so you mentioned that they're, you know... You're, you're being kept honest as far as, as fo- you know, focusing on plot as well as feel and all that stuff. But I, this is maybe my pet peeve, and it's part of why I like old Zelda and stuff like that. But I feel like games need better writing, but they also just sometimes need less writing. Oh, well, funny, funny you should mention that. Our game is, we're aiming towards a completely textless game. That's beautiful. That's... So it's, it's purely, you know, we have some, not to say that we won't have interaction with other characters, but there will be no text. There will be no walls of text. There will be no choose your menu text. There will be none of that. It's just, you know, the whole story is told through visual design and gestural design and maybe a few cutscenes here and there, but it's no text. Even in the towns, when you're interacting with townsfolk, no text. I love that. There's one, there's that game that just came out, uh, Tesla Grad, uh, that does something similar. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. The only text is when you find these little scrolls, uh, you get an achievement that has like a, a very ambiguous name of like the card you found that has something to do with the history. But when there's exposition, it's through like a puppet show or a pantomime. And when you, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I really, really respect that. Cause I think it's something, first of all, it's an interesting animation challenge and it's really cool to see that stuff expressed, you know, as a, as a nerd who loves silent films and stuff like that. But it's also just interesting in that it's something games are really good at, is, you know, doing doing things that don't require Captain Exposition to explain things to you, but can still convey, you know, an interesting story. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of a natural progression because I was doing a lot of storyboarding, and in storyboarding, you cannot do anything with text and that. You have to convey everything visually. You have to convey an entire story and emotions and context through visual design and moments. And, you know, Casey and I, the guy, one of the guys on the team, you know, we had previously worked together on this side project of ours as an animation, and we did like a 13-minute animatic for it, and it was zero speech in it, no dialogue, nothing. It was all told through visual, visual storytelling, and that was very good practice for me to understand. Again, like I've been doing visual storytelling for years and years and years, so I understand how to push it and how to do it and, and how to convey certain things. And that'll definitely be a challenge instead of just like having to type out something, which is like, yeah, type this out. Great. That's easy. But, uh, making, making sure people understand stuff, um, to a degree. But the other nice thing about that is I want people to interpret things how they, they do and make it. That's what makes 
a story great, I think, is people making it their own and, and identifying with components of a story or an entire story and, you know, cross-referencing their own experiences or imagining it in a certain way that really does lock it in their memory and make it their own. Like, you know, any, I think any great story does that. It leaves enough ambiguity. It leaves enough there to be like, yeah, I embrace this component. I really identify with this. And like, this is how I envision this character, whatever else. And that's something that, you know, books do really well because there's no visual component. It's like you imagine a character, how they're going to look and how, how they would sound, whatever else. And it becomes a very personal experience. So the same thing, that's not the same thing I want to do here, but at least with the visual design and the, the textless nature of the game, like I want people to be able to interpret the visual cues that I'm giving them and the designs that I'm throwing out there and, you know, the architecture and whatever else and like take from it what they can. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, mentioning the book thing, I think Notch once said about Minecraft that the reason he never made the visuals, for lack of a better term, better, right, or more, you know, gave them more fidelity is that that way it's more like reading a book than watching a movie. Your mind has to fill in the blanks, and that's why exploring a cave in Minecraft is scarier than Dead Space, uh, or for that matter, why Teleglitch is scarier than Dead Space, right? Like, it, there's something about your brain filling in the blanks, and leaving the proper clues can give somebody a really interesting interpretation that is along the lines of what you were trying to express, but has their own embellishments in a way that, as you say, makes it more memorable. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you look at uh, what some, I mean, I don't know who said this or where it's come from or whatever else, but it's one of those things where um, it's kind of a known property where in, in horror movies and everything else, like the monster's always scarier in your mind than it is on screen. So like show it as little as possible. Yeah, Alien is the classic example that people yeah. use sometimes, right? Keep it as mysterious as possible and keep it as dreadful as possible. And the way you do that is like you don't just fucking straight up show the guy walking around. It's like you hint at it and you make it vicious and you do little things and audio cues and whatever else. And it's like the mind will make things seem much scarier than they actually are if you don't just present it with something that it can automatically process. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, that's that's an old as the hills technique, right? Like, even in, in Beowulf, you don't know what Grendel looks like. In, right. uh, in Journey to the West, the, you know, the monster is not describable, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, you let your mind fill in, like, the most horrifying thing that you personally can think of, because it's different for everybody, you know? Like, the, the monster in Cloverfield should have been, um, you know, less revealed. Yeah, yeah. Well, they made it worse by by saying, "Oh, what's it going to be? It's going to be something beyond your imagination." And that's like, "Oh, it's a it's a monster." All right. Yeah, that's it's fine. like no. If it was beyond my imagination, then you just wouldn't fucking show it at all. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and you couldn't have made it if it was beyond imagination because somebody imagined it. You know, maybe maybe you're saying your imagination's better than mine, and that's 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 well, that's, that's a thing. That's what I'm but... saying. Like, you wouldn't have showed that movie at all if it was beyond your animation. Sure, I see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting the way you were talking about the brain filling in the blanks or the, the individual player filling in the blanks with a story. Uh, I've, I've played a lot of Dark Souls and I, you know, I had certainly my interpretations about characters in it, peripheral characters, especially NPCs, uh, but I'd never really gotten deep, deep into trying to piece together the lore because part of what I like about that game and that world is that no matter how deep you go, it just kind of raises further questions. But there are, I, I recently realized there are people who've gone to great lengths to try and explain it. There's whole series of videos on YouTube explaining in great detail who everybody is. And what I was struck by was that my kind of cursory interpretations were pretty much identical to what, when you get way, way deep into it, 
was supposed to be the angle of a given character. So you can play something like Dark Souls for five minutes and get the same basic important stuff kind of impression as if you've, you know, read every line of flavor text in the thing. And I, th I think there's something to be said for that, right? Like if the environment and the tone says something, then all the flavor text in the world is just that. It's flavor. It's not really going to change what the game is saying on a very a very high or very, uh, you know, sort of both high and deep level, right? Like what it means overall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was, that was just me connecting dots. I don't even know if that was really a question. No, I mean, I, I generally agree on that, on that point. I, I, we've, we've kind of dug pretty deep on the subject anyway. And yeah, yeah. I think... Again, just to underscore what we're attempting with with our with our game and what I've been attempting for a while with with my with this game is just making sure that the player finds this experience satisfying and makes it their own. You know, um, again, one of the best games I've played in the past ten years and uh, it was Journey, and the guy who was behind it for the most part, who did all the visual design and everything else was Matt uh, Nava. And he's, he's a good friend of ours. Um, and his, he has a great understanding of, of, of visual storytelling and then leaving things open for interpretation um, and really making that experience your own. And, and also making an experience that feels whole, even if it is relatively short. And that's pretty important to me, too. And a lot of people ask about length of the game, which I don't fucking understand. It's like, why are you asking me about how long this game is going to be? Who cares as long as it feels great? Um, and that's, you know, I, I have no idea how long this game is going to be right now. I have no fucking clue. I don't have an answer for you. And even if I did have an answer for you down the line, like this game takes 20 hours, I'm not going to say it. It's like it takes as long as you want. You know, as long as you are going to play it, like there's side quests, there's main quests, there's what, like you people will play it in all different sorts of ways. And like, yeah, there's maybe if I was designing this game in a way where it's like, I want you to beat it in one sit down, then sure, I'd be concerned about length. But this is something that is going to have very different components to different pieces of, you know, of the of the entirety so you know it could be it could be laid out in like chapters or whatever that however, however else you want to interpret it but sure yeah the, the lane thing i think is an artifact of how we still tend to talk about games as technology rather than as you know aesthetic or art objects because you would never a book reviewer would never say well points off because this book's only 200 pages a restaurant reviewer would never say well the burger was good but it only weighed a pound you know like that would all seem insane but we're still we're kind of stuck in that holding pattern with games well i think i think it's because a lot of games companies give you those like 60 plus hours of gameplay on the box and all that dumb shit. And one thing that I think Skyrim was smart about is it never told you how much gameplay is in it because it's ridiculously long anyway. It's, it, it, yeah, it's, fun, it's functionally infinite if you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, but you know, something like Zelda, I don't know why they started doing it, but right around the time of like Wind Waker or maybe is one game after that, they started to say like, yeah, this is like a 20 hour game. This is a 40 hour game and Skyward Sword can fucking suck my dick because it should have been a 10 hour game and they made it a 40 hour fucking game. Yeah, well, there. I think you can map that as soon as they started saying this Zelda will take you 40 hours. That was when they started sticking in stuff like the Triforce fetch quests in Wind Waker or all the ridiculous dry backtracking in Skyward Sword, which, yeah, I'm with you on that game. 
fucking awful with all the goddamn backtracking. I could not finish that game. It pissed me off so much. I was just like, what the fuck are you doing, Nintendo? You know how to make games. I was about to I was about to make a defense of Skyward Sword, and then I realized I literally have no memory of the last level, so you probably didn't miss much. No, I didn't fucking play that game because guess what? It came around the same time as Sky as uh, Skyrim. Yeah, I was playing a lot of Skyrim, and then Skyward Sword came out, and I was excited for it, and I played like fucking ten hours of it, and I was like, I'm still in the beginning of the game. What am I doing? I Every time I play this game, I would just rather be playing Skyrim. So eventually I gave up and played Skyrim instead. And then I came back to Skyward Sword like a year later. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is a game. There's some really good stuff in it. And there's some really forward-thinking stuff in it. And I really like some of this dungeon design. But, oh, here's the fucking same dumb shit that I have a problem with over and over again and all this backtracking and all this stupid shit and it's like which is why link between worlds is like my favorite game of the year because it takes the old zelda formula makes it fresh make modernizes a bunch of it and there's no stupid fucking bullshit in it you know it doesn't sit there and make you read through a hundred blocks of text on the seven sages that you don't give a fuck about or that you already know because you've played every goddamn zelda game or because it's such a simplistic concept, all you need is like two words for it. We are the seven sages, we're sacred, the end. That's exactly what Link Between Worlds does. You know, you don't, when you encounter a sage, it's not 30 hours of text like Ocarina of Time had, which for the time was fine, because it was the first game to really do that. And you're like, ah, oh, this is getting deep. And you get some history, but it's like, yeah, we fucking get it, Zelda. You have sages, we understand. Link Between Worlds, I feel like, doesn't treat you like a moron. And Skyward Sword is the exact opposite. It treats you like the stupidest player of all fucking time. It's like, have you ever played video games? And the only two options are no. And you have to pick both of those at the same time, and it compounds it by 30. Yeah, I mean, well, if the game asked you, hey, have you ever played a Zelda game before? And it actually reacted to that. And then it's like, oh, hey, here's a boomerang. You know how to use it. Go for it. You know, then that would be one thing. But you're right. It's the, the There's a certain strain of Nintendo design that has gradually come to assume that we're all stupid. Well, I mean, it's it's, but it's... It's nice and it's refreshing to see this year, like finally Nintendo's turning around. Like you look at Luigi's Mansion, you look at Animal Crossing, you look at fucking Link Between Worlds, you look at Super Mario 3D World. Like there's no bullshit in those games. It's just like, it's straightforward. And it, this is a game, this is what you do. You fucking know how to play a Nintendo game and it's great. And Skyward Sword fucking sucked for that reason because it's the exact opposite. And I don't understand what the hell happened. And one of the other big, huge pet peeves is like, again, having played Skyrim at the same time, I was just like looting shit, picking stuff up, grabbing stuff. And I didn't have to sit through a text boxed and a stupid repeating sound effect every time and a little clip of him holding it up every time I picked up a goddamn beetle in Skyrim, you know? And in Skyrim Sword, for some reason, they thought it was a good idea for every single item you pick up. He does that, and they explain the exact same text 5,000 times throughout the game, and it made me avoid collecting things. Yeah, well, well you half the stuff you don't need anyway, which is the other problem with uh, a lot of modern 3D Zelda games. Not a lot of, but, you know, some of them. went out of my way to collect things because it would do that dumb fucking ah, 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 ah text every time I picked up the same thing that I already have three dozen of. It's like, don't tell me that ever at all, ever again. Stop it. And yeah, Link Between Worlds was really good about that. Like, it only does it for a very few select items, and that's fine. All the rest of it is like, yep, 
uh, good. You understand? Great. I don't care. And then like even the story, it's like, do this. Okay, bye. And then you're on your way. And like you were, you were up and running in that game in like two minutes, just like you were in Link Between, uh, Link to the Past. It's like, yep, you got it. We don't have to explain shit to you. And so, for me, the way to design a game well mechanically and for a player to understand it is just like good visual cues good feedback on the mechanics so that you understand like oh i'm doing this right or i'm doing it wrong or you understand why you're failing it and you can fix it without having to do it in text that's like you know that's that's a failure in game design if you have to explain things through text that you could that you could much better convey through mechanics and through visual and audio feedback and design. Like that's a total fucking failure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's become just a bad habit. I mean, like even, even in Okami, right. They added, uh, they added in Isun and he just talks and talks and talks and talks and all these moments when you just kind of want to be running around exploring the world. It's this thing we've decided is necessary as a trope. Like I almost want to see a Zelda game where kind of in the same way that at the beginning of Iron Man three, they incapacitate the director of the first two films, right? To say, Hey, we're doing a different thing. I'd love to see a Zelda game where the first thing that happens is like Link loses the ferry, like just runs away and uh, Hey, there's nobody telling you to, Hey, listen, it's you're on your own. Enjoy. Listen, Hey, listen, yeah, I don't know. Ocarina of Time is fine because it was a brand new experience and it was like, oh, this is amazing. Everything about this is amazing. And Navi's annoying, but I get it because she's telling you things that you've never done before in a game. Like, these are brand new ideas or they're it's fresh and like, yeah, you do need some fucking explanation, but... After, yeah, it's no. It made all the sense in the world for you to have a guide the first time out, but yeah. to still have one, you know, ten years on or more than that, it's just crazy. It's it's fucking insane. And then Skyward Sword just made it eight hundred times worse than it ever was. And I do not understand what happened. I couldn't get through the Minish Cap either because the the stupid hat just would not show up. Maybe if I get further, the hat shuts up. But it was no, it doesn't. Yeah. I, I played through most of that game, and that's a pretty good Zelda game, except for that bullshit. I really, really liked, you know, the, the Zelda stuff, but the, you know, the getting chaperoned by the freaking hat was was yeah. very, very hard to handle. Being chaperoned is is exactly the right phrase, you know? Like, that's that's what it is. Like, it, I just want to play this. I just want to, like, go fuck my girlfriend behind the bleachers, and you're just, you're holding my hand throughout the whole thing and telling me to get fruit punch and all this dumb shit. It's like, I don't give a <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, it's got the hat's got an air horn. He's like, "Hey, just wanted to make sure you're not having too much fun." Okay, okay, get back to it. It's so stupid. Good lord! And this, this <laughs> is why I appreciate games, and which is why I'm designing my game in a way where there's no fucking text to explain shit. It's like you just try it and you figure it out and you get good at it. And like I play a lot of fighting games, and you just have to get good at it and practice it and know like and actually pay attention and yes the game will reward you for doing it right and will tell you when to do certain things and you will start to see these openings and you'll start to see like how to do things and that's good fucking game design you know um not not fucking text explaining everything fuck text i love writing i love books i love when things are written well but holy shit games have gotten so fucking dredged down by all the garbage explanation text and it's just like stop it 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, the same rule. It's not it's not to diminish the importance or the value of words to say that you don't want to use more words than you need or you don't want to over-explain things. That's a rule in, in writing, too. I mean, in a book, <laughs> if it says, and here's how this guy was feeling, he was feeling like this. You know, you want, you want to see it happen. You don't want to be told that this is what is about to happen and now it's what's happening. Which is why Hemingway was so successful because uh, in, in his writing, not, not monetarily or anything or in popularity, I think I'm talking successful in my eyes as an actual author like of words and stories and craft um he was able to tell a story and stir emotion um, an emotional response with very straightforward language you know there wasn't a lot of flourish or bullshit in it. it was just like this is this and this is how this goes and you fill in the rest of it and you make it your own you know yeah, totally. I mean, Hemingway was the master of that, and I also love Kurt Vonnegut for that, right? Where it was very, very plain rap language, and then it would also say, you're probably waiting for the twist, so here's what the twist is going to be. Stop worrying about that and pay attention to this other stuff. Like, yeah. to, to sort of, again, strip it down, that, that kind of minimal thing is incredibly powerful. And then the, the flip side of that is fucking F. Scott Fitzgerald again. Like, all these buddies hung out, whatever, and he, he like, was super... Like, that guy spent so much time revising his shit and making sure like, Oh, every little word and flourish. And like, there's so much other dumb detail and just like little bits that are irrelevant. And it's like, I don't, I, I could never get into the great Gatsby for those reasons. It's like, this is way overdone. Gatsby's really interesting actually. Cause again, we're talking about like minimal and maximal. Like it's, I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I, I want to bring the conversation around not so far as to say that, you know, the great Gatsby is the Diablo of, uh, of early 20th century literature or anything. But what I'm saying is like, all, there is a lot of ornamentation, but it's also like obsessively chosen that there's there. It's kind of zero waste. Like it's such a short book, well, and, and yet it you know guy obsessed over it. And you read like how he actually wrote, and he would make thirty copies of a single page or a single fucking paragraph. The guy was obsessive about this stuff. Yeah, he yeah. didn't just let it flow. Like he went back and edited like a motherfucker. No, you can only really compare it to Kafka in terms of the density of every color, every piece of material, every just every single word is chosen to be just dense and thick with meaning, you know. And if your head can get into that space, it's kind of incredible. But it, but it's it, yeah. it can almost be oppressively worked over, you know. I can, listen. I can I can appreciate well worded, flourishy stuff as long as it's elegant, as long as it's poetic, as long as it's got some flow to it, you know, and, and there are amazing writers who use massive words and, and a lot of explanation and exposition and whatever else. And it's great, you know, but there's a time and a place for it. And some are just, most are just bad at it. And I feel like for games, because it's been such a rapid rise in technology and the capabilities and, you know, like all the talent that we, that everybody hires now. And it's like, Oh shit, now we can do, stories that are as big as an entire television series you know it's as opposed to such a condensed experience like linked to the past it's like oh shit what are we gonna do let's hire writers and then they end up quashing that stuff you know like i've heard stories about diablo 3 and like the development hell that it went through like seven or eight years and they had great writers and they had a great story and that shit gets chopped up and it gets minced out and people leave and thing, ideas get squashed and things change and they reboot it and they do this and they do that. And it's like, no fucking wonder Diablo 3 turned out like garbage because these fucking people dragged it through the mud for 10 years. Yeah. Instead yeah. of releasing a fucking game that they should have released eight years ago. Right. It's, it's the same way that films can get focus grouped to death. 
uh, it is possible to work on something too long or overbake it or simply consider too many factors instead of considering the core factors and just letting that yeah. letting that ride, letting it letting it be what it is. And people and people don't do that enough. Companies don't do that enough. And, uh, and games again, like they're in their infancy compared to all these other forms of art. And you know, fuck Roger Ebert, even though he's dead, he's an asshole. Um, games are art. They have art in them, therefore they are art. Fuck that guy. So yeah, well, here, well, and here's the thing. Like I, so I was an art history major as an undergrad, which like you know, it's like the joke useless degree. But hey, there it is. I, you know, I, I've said on uh, on the the blog where this podcast is getting posted that you know I had the what is art discussion more often than I had hot meals for a period of years, and it's never useful. There's just never a point to trying to say here's what's art and here's what's not. You just have to you have to talk about what's interesting and let leave it at that because you're always the only reason anybody ever makes a what is art argument is to elevate the art they like or the stuff that they like over what someone else likes in some kind of faux intellectual They're way. Assholes. Like Roger Ebert, because they're fucking assholes. That's the reason why you bring that up. And trust me, I went to art school. I was in fine arts. Like, I had plenty of art history. Oh, I'm not lording it over you. I'm saying I'm a fellow traveler. That's that's what I'm saying. No, I, I understand. I'm just pissed off about Roger Ebert. <laughs> understandably, understandably. Yeah, and, like, I, th- I think it was, um, uh, it was Penny Arcade that was talking about this a while, like, years and years ago in one of the, one of the news posts. And I think it was Gabe that was just like, you know, games have art in it. Therefore, they are fucking art. Fuck you. And it's basically like, yeah, that's the exact sentiment. Um, and yeah, of course, you can interpret anything how you want to interpret it. And art is in the eye of the beholder and all that stuff. And I'm totally with that. But fuck that asshole. Yeah, well, no one's ever been able to explain to me adequately what you gain by saying that something's not art. You know, you're... Sub- Roger Ebert, not Penny Arcade. I'm saying fuck Roger Ebert. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I follow completely, and it's just uh, nobody, Roger Ebert included, has ever been able to adequately explain what you gain by saying something's not art. It's... Y- there's no... There's no purpose to it. It's not... It's not an idea that's used for anything. You, you start a fucking flame ro- war is what you get, and you have people talking about you, and you boost your own ego. Yeah. Because then you're able to be like, oh, people agree with me and people disagree with me and I can get angry and I can start some bullshit. It's like, all you're doing is stirring up crap. And that was, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm the millionth person to point this out, but it's especially weird for Roger Ebert to have made that argument because it's, his arguments were almost to the word, the kinds of things people said about film, you know, early in its life about why it could never be art. Oh, it's made by technicians, not artists. So there's no single authorship. And there's this whole latticework of like auteur theory and stuff to sidestep that, but you don't have to sidestep that because it's no. bullshit to begin with. The guy is one of the most inane things I'd ever heard from him. Like, usually his, he had some semblance of, uh, I don't know, intelligence in his reviews. But then, like, that whole fucking... <laughs> it was just like this letter of fuck you, and also, by the way, I'm an idiot. It's yeah, like, yeah. What the when he, and he was weirdly offended at the idea. He was like, well, I thought I could just make an abstract argument. And I, I didn't think it was too much of a hindrance that I'd never played a game. Contradictory, and like you said... like. All of these things, exactly what you're saying has been made about fucking film in the past, you goddamn moron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, right. yeah. When it's, and it's when I talk to people who, are, who don't play games, right, of, of which there are still quite a few, I, I, I think of it... He played games. And you games that he did play, it's like, you don't understand. You're an idiot. And you're judging this based off of a very, very limited, um, like, basically no understanding of the medium. You're making this whole fucking argument, and the problem that I had with that letter was that he has a platform, he has a following, he has a voice that people respect and pay attention to. And for him to speak out on a subject that he knows so very little about, 
And he's trying to pump up his, his credentials and be like, yeah, I play this and I play that. And it's like, fuck off, asshole. You don't. You don't play all the things that are out there. And you don't recognize this. Like, the things that you mentioned, that's fucking, that's nothing. That's minimal. That's, that is almost irrelevant. Yeah, if the, if the point is games are a worthy me- a medium worthy of consideration and, and aesthetic appreciation, the counter-argument is not, oh, the text in Braid is kind of clunky. That's That doesn't really, you know, undo the, the argument. Well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's like me saying, like, hey, I watched Citizen Kane, and that's the only movie I've ever watched, and now, yeah, obviously I have a great understanding of movies, and I'm going to talk about how they're not art. It isn't even like that. It'd be like if you'd watched stills of Citizen Kane and then made a determination. Because he, he, he didn't even claim to have played the games, I don't think. He just said he watched some stuff on YouTube. You yeah. know, so like if you I've never seen a movie, but I saw like a I saw like a, a gif of the sarcastic clapping from Citizen Kane. And I don't see how that's art. So and, and so much for film. Somebody else told me about how they did this and, and how they filmed this. And that was interesting. And then, oh, yeah, now I know everything about games. Right. Right, it's insane. It's crazy because, like, you, you know, I get that. You know, being a scholar of film doesn't mean you automatically get to have an opinion about games any more than being fluent in Spanish means you automatically also speak Russian. You still have to learn things right. before you have a valid opinion, no matter how eminent you are in your own field. For me, at least, I I don't talk about shit unless I feel like I know what the fuck I'm talking about and I have some experience that I can draw from. And anybody who does is a goddamn asshole. You know, fuck them for trying to pretend they know anything about anything if they don't have experience in it. And potentially the bigger issue is we spend too much time deciding what we're on the side of or what we're against on the internet. Because I think I think people, you know, including that Ebert argument, these dumb battle lines were drawn about, like, games are art, games are not art. When in fact, like, you don't have to be pro or con a given game or a given movie or, a, you know, an aesthetic movement. They're just ideas. They're there for you to pick up and use when they're useful, and they're there for you to ignore when they're not. And that's, there isn't anything more to it than that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. It's, there's a lot of silly shit going on. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of silly shit. And I mean, I've heard the argument that, you know, people who play games are especially susceptible to that because it's, it's you know, it's all wins and losses, man. You know, but I, th- I think everybody falls victim to that. We tend to want there to be a winner and we want to be, a, we want an us and them. It's human nature. People, people want the simple answer. Yeah, right. They, they can't, they can't live in shades of gray, which the fucking world is. Like there's, you know, anybody who's so strongly um you know like hyper religious or hyper dedicated to this or that or talks about karma or like this these great injustices or whatever it's like it's all relative it's all it's all contextual and it's all very subjective you know like morality is incredibly subjective Right, and that's that's not to say we can't make determinations, just that if you think, that's well, just, I have one principle and that guides everything, then you are definitely oversimplifying. Yeah, as a society, we absolutely can agree on a set of morals, but we have to realize that that's just, that's all it is. Like, this isn't universal law. This is, like, the only universal constants are fucking uh, physics and, you know, quantum physics and whatever other laws of, you know motion and matter actually happens and occurs in our universe as yeah, far yeah. as human nature and as far as societal structure all it that's all it is is to keep things together like there's 
having having somebody espouse that there's like some moral greater moral compass out there bigger than mankind, I think is fucking idiotic. Well, it's my favorite counter argument to that whole idea is like you read, you know, the book of, uh, of Hagar, the handmaid in the in the, the desert in the Bible and God makes a stone sprout water and saves her and her child. And you're like, oh, cool. Go, God. You hear the story of Job and your first reaction isn't, OK, cool. Go, God. It's wait. Why would God do that? So yeah. you're you're judging God, which is supposed to be according to, you know, according to, you know, serious Christian fundamentalist thought supposed to be the source of all meaning and all uh, all morality and you're judging it with a morality that comes from outside of that so clearly there's something that every human has operating in their head that goes beyond i was told this therefore it's the basis of my morality and it's just about like oh yeah well that's that's a shitty dickish thing to do what god did to job why would god do that you know what i mean yeah, but I think, again, like that's born into us so that we can function as a social species. Like we have certain functions built into us through our coded through our DNA or whatever else, or that we've developed over, you know, the centuries again in order to function as a social species. Like we wouldn't have these these tells within us, these things that psychopaths lack, you know, like empathy and sympathy and whatever else, if we didn't have to function as a greater whole. You know, rather than as just individuals that are survivalists on their own. Right, right. You it's, don't need. You well, know. It is. It's not some greater universal truth. And I, it's it, for me, it's just like I feel like people who are just so confident in in the in God and whatever else, like how goddamn selfish and self-important do you think you are, or do you think humans are? Look at the universe and how vast it is. What the fuck are we? We're blinks of an eye. We're nothing. We're specks on this tiny planet in an infinite mass of mass. It's like we mean nothing to anything. Stars don't give a fuck about our love life. You know, the universe doesn't give a fuck about what we do. There's no goddamn rolling chain of karma to tell you this, this or that. It's all chaos, you know, like it's ordered chaos to a degree. And you look at something that's so much more massive and so much more important, like a supernova or just a star being formed. And the amount of energy and the amount of complex components having to combine and having to fuse and having to function in a way that we can't even fucking understand like we have very limited understanding of ourselves let alone the greater universe and the meaning of it and if there's a fucking god out there which is why i don't say like straight out there's no god there's no this it's like i don't know i'm a fucking shitty little human doctors can't even diagnose me with a proper disease like what the fuck do we know about anything else if we can't even figure ourselves out? Absolutely. Well, and the, the arrogance of thinking that if there is a God and he's the prime mover and he sat you down and talked to you, you'd understand that you could get your, your place in the universe, even if someone sat you down and explained it to you. Like you say, we don't even fully understand how our bodies work. We're a long way from that. And I'm sure, you know, you have a special perspective on that, I'm sure. I do. And, and, and then, which is why it just infuriates me more. It's like people humans are just so arrogant as a species and it's like the universe doesn't give a fuck the world barely gives a fuck you know it it throws hurricanes at whatever it will do what it does it doesn't care it doesn't have a moral system it just functions how it's supposed to function based on scientific laws and scientific reasoning and whatever other forms of elemental design that it was created or formed from you know it's there this whole 
I don't know. Anyway, we're going way off subject here. No, no, no. It's in a weird way. It's right on topic, right? Because it's, you know, these are, I think the one's place in the universe is the kind of thing that a game can really explore well, because it's about systems and it's about how you fit into them. And I think the game systems are, especially in an exploration based game, like old Zelda, it rings the most true when you're not quite sure how shit works. I mean, that's again, why people like dark souls. Cause you, you don't, there is no, here are the three gods of Hyrule and here's what each one of them does. And each one gives you a crystal and there's magic powers. It's just like the world works the way it works. It's beautiful and it's dangerous and it's, and it's beyond you and explore it and do the best you can to find your place in it and thrive in it. But know that you can't know everything about it or understand how all of its systems hum. Right. And it keeps, it keeps the game interesting. And and that, that like air of mystery and like it keeps you, intensely interested and drawn in that universe it's like oh maybe i can find something out about this or that or like what the fuck is that and also it says fuck you and just throws heavy enemies at you that kill you instantly and that's great um but yeah like even in the beginning of dark soldiers that whole cut scene about like these gods fought and this happened and this bone dragon and whatever else and it's like that's awesome what the fuck does this have to do with me that's exactly it and then the narrator disappears after you get to to lordran is the the main area right like you you never hear from the narrator again it's just like well your fate is to stay here forever uh, also you're not going to stay here forever uh, anyway uh, enjoy like it's just it 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 explicitly says basically we have all this stuff here for you to think about and chew over, but don't expect to understand it in its totality because you can't. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of its its brilliant pieces. You know, it's one of the refreshing things in Dark Souls and why so it has such a hardcore following. Obviously, it's not you know a super uber success like some other AAA titles or anything. But I'm I'm glad that a game like that exists and the game like that can have such a hardcore following because it's like yeah. You don't need to be have your you don't need to have your hand held through story. You don't need to have your hand held through the world. You don't need to have your hand held through fucking combat. Like things can be brutal in every aspect and people will still enjoy the fuck out of your game and explore the hell out of it. And that's the same kind of mentality that I have for Hyperlight. It's just like, you know, there's there's gonna be it's a hard fucking game. And one of the most gleeful things for me was the other the other night when we had this demo and all the spiders drop. And then people just die. And when there's a crowd going, oh, and it's just like, yes, that's great. It makes me laugh when they die because it's so much fun to watch the reaction and to see like, fuck, I wasn't careful enough. And how do I approach things differently? And, you know, like I have to be wary of this incredibly dangerous world. You know, this this is a world that is vibrant and alive and fucking savage. And it will kill you at, at a moment's notice if you aren't paying attention and keep it on your fucking toes. It's the bluntest possible instrument, but it's such a damn good one with people who play games a lot. If you want them to really pay attention to the world, just make it, make, make it a threat. You know, yeah. return that to it. I wonder sometimes if there's another or a better way to make people really pay attention, but man, that's a good tool. I mean, like, again, Spelunky is, is a great example of that. Dark Souls is a great example of that. Old Zelda is a great example of that. That that game is kind of brutal. I'm thinking of the original, but Link to the Past 2 at parts. Zelda is... is a- fucking hard game as are plenty of nintendo games because they had such limited thing tools to work with and it's you know they they were trying so many fresh ideas and it's just like let's let's throw this out there and see how people react and they weren't worried about guiding people through experiences or like making this too easy or too hard it's just like let's just make this thing and see what happens and it's great and spelunky you know is a great 
has been one of the greater roguelikes in a long time just because um, it's all about your skill. Whereas Risk of Rain is fun, but there's a lot of that grinding, and I fucking hate grinding. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that's the problem a lot of people had with uh, Rogue Legacy as well. You just kind of have to grind gold at a certain point. It's like, yeah, no, thank you. So for Hyperlight, we're not doing any of that dumb grinding. It's just, it's all the systems and upgrades that we have and all the, like, navigation through the world and, you know, getting to different spots and, you know, artificial walls or walls put up through, you know, like, say, if you like Super Metroid style design where, like, you have to get this item to do this. It's like, in our game, it's, you have to be skillful enough. Mm -hmm. There are upgrades that make certain things easier to do, um, but you can pretty much get through the entire game on your on your basic skill sets as long as you're good enough, as long as you're fast enough. You know, like you can parry your way through certain things. You can dash your way if you time it right. Like if you get good enough at certain things, like yeah, you'll just you'll be able to manage it. And not to say that other things won't be important and that other items or weapons won't be important, but we're designing a game based on skill, and I think Spelunky was really good in showing like you don't have to have a grindy roguelike in order to be fun, and it can be it can be all about skill, and that's what we're all about too. Yeah, the only grind in Spelunky is the accumulation of all those little skills and pieces of information, you know. So it's the the grind is completely in your head; it's not mechanical. Yeah, you get gold, and you can get some extra weapons or whatever else. But honestly, you can get through most of it if you're just good at it. Yeah. And the same thing for us, you know, it's not to say that you don't get extra things, you don't level certain things up and whatever else, you don't get new items, you don't get new skills. Like, yes, you get all that stuff, but it's all skill based. It's not just like you now have a hammer and can break through this and there you go. That's it. It's like, yeah, there's some stuff like that, but the truly meaningful stuff and the story stuff are hidden behind skill walls, not behind, you know, artificial, like get a hammer wall. Not, you know, not to beat up on Wind Waker, because I like Wind Waker, but it's not the boat telling you, yeah, you can't go here yet. That's, you know, that's not quite... Off. I didn't... The first time I played that game, I didn't notice that so much, because I was just kind of following the story. But then recently, having picked up a Wii U and with that with the, that whole package, and playing it again, and I was trying to go somewhere, and for the first time I encountered, the boat was like, we can't go this way yet, you have to go here. I'm like, what the fuck, are you serious? And it's like, shit, I forgot this game is from like 2001. And I'm I'm used to games like Skyrim and whatever else that have really opened up game design. And so that's the same kind of thing with us. Like, we're not trying to build a linear experience. It's like, you can go places. You can go as deep as you want, as long as you're skillful enough. Yep. Do you need to go, by the way? We've been talking a good hour and a half, and it's been... uh, Yeah, I think it's about time for me to head out. All good. Well, thank you so much for this. This This was pretty incredible. Uh, I hope you had a good time. I definitely did. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I'm always glad to yell about things for a while. <laughs> yell, yell and fuss about shit. And, you know, game design and art and stuff is something I'm passionate about, so I'm always happy to discuss that shit with somebody who's intelligent. So. If, uh, if passion about art and yelling about things that make you angry uh, aren't what the internet is about, then I don't know what the internet's about. No, it's good. It's good stuff. Cool. Well, thanks again. Uh, best of luck with uh, with the game. I can't wait to play it. Uh, it's looking better and better, and uh, yeah, it looks like it's so tremendously up my alley that I, I just can't wait. So. Cool, man. I'm glad glad that you like it. Cool. Um, we'll be in touch. Thanks for talking. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, later. So that's that. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening uh, today and throughout 2013. It has been a lot of fun so far, and uh, as I mentioned, we have some uh, some good plans for the future. Uh, so please stick with us. You can subscribe to this podcast using good old-fashioned RSS. Uh, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbay. Uh, our most recent episodes are on SoundCloud. You uh, Also, if you were to happen upon a magical lamp of some kind and you were to rub it and be granted three wishes, you could hypothetically use one of those wishes to hear our most recent episode. Uh, that'd be flattering. Frankly, I think it'd be a waste of a wish, so I'd advise against it. Uh, I would say that instead, maybe you should just check out the blog at etao.wordpress.com. That'd be my advice. I hope you all had a very happy version of whichever holidays you have celebrated or are currently celebrating. Thank you very much. See you in 2014. Never mind the reason None of your business, the reason